Well, let me wish you a happy Easter Sunday. Thank you. It's nice to see you all. Um, today we are coming to the end of our little Easter series uh, that we looked at, uh, where we've been looking at three meals with Jesus. They all take place in the Gospel of John. And uh, so far, we've enjoyed a dinner and a supper. And today, we're going to tuck into a breakfast on the beach. A barbecue, fish barbecue on the beach. Um, John chapter 21 is what one writer describes as a spectacular chapter. And uh, I want to take a moment, first of all, just to set it up for us, okay? So... The big thing, the first thing to notice about John's Gospel is that it could have ended at the end of the previous chapter. Chapter 20, maybe it should have ended at the end of chapter 20. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to his shocked disciples who didn't expect it at all. And just look with me, keep your finger in the page by the way, look with me at the end of chapter 20. And the last couple of verses there, John says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see what I mean? That sounds like the end, doesn't it? Full stop. Yeah, the book ends there, 20 chapters. This could have been all that we had in John's Gospel. But in chapter 1, bizarrely, John carries on <laughs> after he seems to have finished. It's almost like he's written us a long letter and then he's given us a chapter's worth of PS added on at the end. I want to suggest to you that this is not an accident and it's not an afterthought as if John had forgotten something. I think what John is doing here is very deliberately showing us what difference the resurrection of Jesus makes to his friends. John's gospel is not, Jesus is alive again, full stop. John's gospel is, Jesus is alive again, and here's what it means. And chapter 21 is John kind of spelling that out for us. Now, we're going to hopefully be very simple today, but I do need your help because I, I really think that we need to use our imagination to kind of get under the skin of what's going on here as we look at this chapter because I think John is writing this chapter to set the tone for the next 2,000 years. I don't think he, under, under the inspiration of God, he's writing, in a sense, this chapter to set the tone for the future. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. This short period between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension back to heaven is a unique period in history. You might know this, but... This, this strange period lasted for about six weeks. 
And it, it's like some kind of twilight zone or in-between zone. There, there's a transition going on here where Jesus has risen, but he's not now with them all the time like he was before. And he's kind of not yet fully gone. This is not because he's hiding in someone's basement or he's gone to live in a cave in the desert somewhere and keeps coming back to visit them. After the resurrection, Jesus has already returned to heaven. But over this six-week period, Jesus seems to come and go. He appears to his disciples during this period. And I think one of the things that's happening is that he's preparing them for the day when he'll be permanently gone. And this is like an in-between time. It's the end of one era, Jesus being with them physically all the time, and it's the beginning of another era, Jesus still being with them, but from his throne in heaven now. This new era is what we might call the age of the church. And I think this huge chapter's worth of P.S. at the end of John this, it's, a, it's written as a kind of encouraging foretaste of what things will always be like for all of Jesus' friends in all places in the future, including us. What happens in chapter 21 here is true and real, but it's setting the tone for the age of the church. What Jesus is like here in this chapter is what he's always like. And what it feels like to be a disciple in this chapter is what it will always feel like to be a disciple of Jesus in this world. I think this is one of the reasons why John seems to finish at the end of chapter 20 and then carry on. This is how the resurrection of Jesus meets the messy lives of his true followers in this world. So, we need to use our imagination, but we're going to be very simple as well. I want to walk through this chapter, and we're going to pick out five things that the risen Jesus gives them. And as we do that, I want you to be encouraged that the risen Jesus is still giving these five things to his believing followers these real events are the pledge of what the risen Jesus will continually be doing, even for us in Rotherham in 2022. This chapter here is what the church of Jesus should smell like all the time. Not, not a fish. But you know what I mean. This is what the church of Jesus should smell like in every age. Hopefully by the time we get to the end, that'll make sense. So first of all, the risen Jesus gives us his care. His tender care. The first thing to, to notice here is that the action takes place in a place called Galilee. In verse 1, John mentions the Sea of Tiberias. That is another name for the lake called Galilee. 
I was fortunate enough to go there in 2017 and this picture is one that I took. And this is looking back across the Lake Galilee, the northern end of the lake, towards Capernaum, which is where Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John came from. So this is looking back to where they lived across the Lake of Galilee. A lot of the recent action in this first Easter story has taken place, as you know, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city and is 80 miles to the south. But after the resurrection, we read in Mark's gospel that the disciples are told to go back home, to go back up north to Galilee, where they're from, and to wait for Jesus in Galilee. Now, I I think it's easy to miss the significance of this. But let's try for a moment to put ourselves in the shoes of these men. There are seven of them listed here in verse 2. Maybe there were others there later. But let's put ourselves in their shoes. They are now trying to process the most disturbing week of their entire lives. Think first of the huge crowds in Jerusalem during Passover week. Literally thousands of people from almost every nationality crammed into every narrow street. Noise and queues everywhere. Shops selling out of all kinds of things, the colours, the smells. I, I think Jerusalem would be something like Meadowhall during its busiest Christmas periods, but on steroids. You, you know what I mean? So, some of us love that. Some of us like, I'm not going anywhere near that. But then think about the bloody trauma that these men have experienced at the end of what had been an incredibly busy week. Think about the horror of them seeing their master taken from them, brutally beaten, and then crucified with two criminals outside the city. And then think of that shock and fear and pain and despair being suddenly replaced by the stunning reversal that they've now witnessed as Jesus appears to them alive again. Just look back with me at the end of chapter 20 and uh, verse 20. Jesus appears to his disciples. He showed them his hands and his side. And John says there, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The word unprecedented has been overused, I think, during COVID. But this is the very definition of unprecedented, isn't it? This is extraordinary. Doubting Thomas refused to believe it. He said, I will not believe it unless I can put my own fingers where the nails were. And then Jesus appears to them again. And Thomas falls 
to his knees, crying out, my Lord and my God. Jesus is alive again. It's not the end. But think too of the uncertainty that these men now feel. They've been with Jesus for three years. What's, I mean, this is not a question of sport, but what happened next? Think of the uncertainty that they feel. When will they see Jesus again? What are his plans now? How do they fit into those plans if they do at all? What will Jesus say? What will Jesus do? I, I, I think it's fair to say that their heads must be spinning. And I, I don't want you to forget that there's, there's a dark shadow hanging over all of this as well. Think too of Peter. Who had loudly protested. Even if everyone else runs away, I'm ready to die with you, Lord. And three times he was asked, you know Jesus, don't you? And he said, no, I've never heard of him, don't know him. The deep wound of failure was still open and bleeding. His tears were still tingling wet. His shame still burning deep. Imagine the liveliness of their shell-shocked conversations as they come home to Galilee. Trying to work it all out. Imagine them remembering things that Jesus had said and them dawning on them with fresh power. Imagine them talking about familiar passages in the Old Testament and thinking, oh, that's what that meant for the first time in their lives, seeing things that they'd never seen before. Imagine them wondering about the future as they try to make sense of all this busyness and trauma and glory and failure. Is it not striking that Jesus has risen from the dead and they have a million questions? And isn't it, isn't it encouraging that in this most dizzying of times, Jesus tenderly sends them home to Galilee? In fact, back to where it all started for them, where they first met him. Jesus knows that they need time and space to process what they've seen and experienced. When they are still totally overwhelmed, disorientated, isn't Jesus kind? Go back to Galilee and wait for me there. The risen Jesus knows what they need. I think there's lots for us to learn here, isn't there? When we are deeply perplexed, by what life throws at us. It is okay to have questions. And when we're overwhelmed, isn't it good to know that Jesus isn't? He even conquered death. 
But isn't it also sweet to know that it's okay to go to Galilee sometimes and wait for him? Recover some balance. I don't know where your Galilee would be. I don't know what your Galilee is. But isn't it sweet to know that Jesus is kind to his friends? Oh, well, we got five of these. That's the first. <laughs> Number two, Jesus. The risen Jesus gives us his, not just his care, but his power. Now, we've, we've hardly started this passage here, have we? Chapter 21. This scene comically begins in verse 3, really, with Peter suddenly blurting out, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. <laughs> We're coming with you. <laughs> he sounds like a Yorkshireman. This is their home. Fishing used to be their livelihood. They were good at it. You, you can actually see the familiarity for John in the little detail in verse 3. Notice in verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Sam, Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into, not at boat, but the boat. That, that, that little detail, the familiarity. This is their home. Maybe their boat's been waiting for them. They know this lake, this lake. They know the weather. They know where the fish are. They know how the boat behaves on the water. I'm going fishing. Now, uh, I've got to tell you, there's been a lot of debate by commentators over the centuries about whether Peter was right to go fishing here. Some commentators have been very hard on him, you know. And the reason for that is that people have pointed out that three years earlier, when Jesus first met these men and they were fishing then, he called them from their fishing to follow him. He said to them, I don't want you to catch fish anymore. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Follow me. So they left their nets and they followed Jesus. So some commentators think that this represents... Peter and the others almost giving up in despair and kind of going back to their old life. I'm going fishing. <laughs> others have viewed it more kindly. We'll never really know, but you can't help sympathizing with Peter. I wonder whether Peter in this moment is thinking, I'm no good as a disciple of Jesus. I had a go at it, and I was rubbish. I thought I was better than I was. I'm going fishing. This is the moment where he decides to do the one thing he knows he's good at. It's easy, isn't it, to go backwards. It's easy to think, I can't do this. I don't know what your fishing is, but that's with Peter, I'm going fishing. <laughs> now, the unexpected problem was that these experienced pros then didn't catch a single fish all night. Not one. 
not one. They were tired and hungry and damp and cold. And as the sun rises over the lake, they've got nothing. Maybe for Peter, the empty nets secretly reminded him of how he was feeling inside. Defeated and hopeless. And to make it worse, a figure appears on the shore and asks them how things had gone. They don't realise at first that it's actually Jesus. And literally, Jesus asked them, lads, have you caught any? <laughs> now, I, I, I've done a fair bit of fishing, not, not, not in the lake, but... I, no, it is in a lake. I was going to say not in the sea. It is in a lake, not as big as this one. And this is true to life. Sometimes people wander up and down the bank, maybe walking their dog or whatever, and you try not to catch their eye because if you do, they'll go, have you caught out? <laughs> and you're like, don't ask me. Fishermen are often tempted to lie. You know, well, I've had a few bites. Uh, it's embarrassing, isn't it? The shadowy figure, though, on the shore then tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And so they do. Why not? Fishermen call this one last cast. One last cast. You never know. But this time, the net is full to the brim. There were so many fish that they couldn't even heave the net into the boat. So they had to kind of guide the boat with the net dragging behind them back to the shore. And something triggers one of them in verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved, most commentators believe that this is John himself who wrote this gospel. He whispers to Peter, It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Peter. And Peter, with characteristic impulsiveness, it's always John that sees and Peter that runs. He girds up his clothes and he dives into the water. I do love this cry of recognition. The fact that in the darkness, against this cold, wet backdrop of failure and struggle, he sees Jesus on the shore as the dawn breaks. It's the Lord. Peter, this is the cry of God's people in every age, even through tears. The towering presence of the risen Jesus over the sometimes miserable, ordinary struggles of life. It's the Lord. He's not absent. He's right here. Peter's so human, isn't he? Despite his sadness, he doesn't look like a man who's running away, does he? He, he dives in. It, in fact, he leaves all of his friends to tow the boat in with the fish because he's so keen to get to Jesus. It's so human. What is the lesson here? Three years earlier in this very place, Jesus had called these fishermen and he'd said to them, follow me 
and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, Jesus was calling them to be evangelists. It's very striking to me that at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses words. He reminds his friends that all authority and power has been given to him. And he says to them, therefore, go into all the world and tell people what you now know. This is their great task. Jesus is king and their job is to tell people. In Matthew, they heard the words. In John, Jesus backs up the words with an incredible, stunning miracle that they would never forget. Jesus is teaching them gently that they won't catch anything on their own. (laughs) If they try to fish in their own strength, they'll fail. But when they rely on Jesus and when they follow his directions, the risen Jesus will powerfully bless them. It's almost as if Jesus is gently teasing them Why are you struggling as though it's all on you? Trust in me. I know it's hard work, but I'm with you and the power is all mine. I will build my church and even the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Sometimes when people ask a fisherman if they've caught anything, I already touched on this, they can be tempted to lie. Well, I've had a couple, you know. (laughs) Such a good thing that they were honest. We've caught nothing. Sometimes admitting our failure is the door to success. We've caught nothing. Of course, Jesus already knew that their nets were empty. And he stood on the shore ready to help them go again and succeed. Isn't it hard to admit? Even to ourselves sometimes. Our weakness, we've we've caught nothing. But the risen Jesus promises here to meet his people at the point of their deepest need and change things. Fishing for fish or for people is really hard work. But what an encouraging scene this is for believers in every generation and age. Jesus promises that his power will be with his people as they honestly navigate the choppy waters of real life, reaching out with the good news of the gospel, and the risen Jesus powerfully blesses them as they admit defeat and learn to rely on him. Thirdly, the risen Jesus gives us his presence. So we've reached the tasty barbecue breakfast on the beach. Last time, last week, if you were here, we saw Jesus washing his disciples' feet. This time, he collects the wood. He lights a fire. He prepares some fish. And what an invitation in verse 12. 
Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. That's a good invitation, isn't it? Come and have breakfast. The risen Jesus is not a ghost. He's not a myth. This is not a metaphor. He really and literally cooks breakfast on the shore of Lake Galilee after a long and fruitless night. They've just seen his power displayed and now they enjoy his fish barbecue. It seems to me to emphasise the simple, ordinary, warm, friendliness, <laughs> hospitality, if you like, of the risen Jesus. Come, come and have breakfast. I think there's a lot we could say about this too. But I think it's clear that nothing pleases Jesus more than to eat with his friends. Nothing pleases Jesus more than to eat with his friends. He enjoys their company. But this is not just Jesus providing after a long night for their hungry tummies, their practical needs. I, I think there's a sense here in which Jesus also loves to unite them. The risen Jesus here warmly encourages their togetherness. They are his. They are one. And Jesus here both feeds them and unites them. And isn't this another wonderful picture for his church in every age? The risen Jesus inviting his friends to gather around him so that he can knit their hearts together and nourish them. We're not on a beach having fish sandwiches. I did wonder today whether to have fish finger sandwiches as part of our refreshments. It would have been so cool if the place had... Everyone's going, oh, I wish you had. I do love a good fish finger sandwich. And the place would have smelt of fish as well, wouldn't it? Which would have been great for the folks at Bream. Um, but the, the real picture here, though, is of the risen Jesus spiritually gathering his friends around him to unite them and to nourish their hearts. Where, do you think like that when you come to church on a Sunday? When we come here on a Sunday, when we get together like this as a church family, we do so because Jesus is saying, come and have breakfast. Come and eat. Come together. I enjoy your company. Sometimes in the past, I don't know if we've sung this recently, we, we've sung a simple song that goes like this. As we are gathered, Jesus is here. One with each other, Jesus is here. Joined by the Spirit, washed in the blood, part of his body, the Church of God. As we are gathered, Jesus is here. We don't see him with our physical eyes, but by his spirit, the risen Jesus is here. 
gathering us to himself and uniting us to one another and feeding us not with fish sandwiches but through his word let's return to peter for a moment fourthly jesus the risen jesus gives us his healing in verse 15 john tells us that when they had finished eating Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Now, I, I, I didn't know this, but I discovered this week that in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there are only two places where charcoal fires are mentioned. Two pla- only two. One of them is here. This morning on the beach. And the other is a week before, during the night, in the courtyard of the high priest's house. It was actually John who got Peter inside. He he must have had some connection with the high priest. They wouldn't let Peter in at first, but John got him in. And as Peter stood there in the cold, warming his hands around a charcoal fire three different people asked him if he knew Jesus and three times he said no I never heard of him you couldn't imagine two more different fires could you around one the sun was going down as Peter failed and around the other the sun is coming up As he finds forgiveness. Three irritating questions in a hostile environment, followed by three gentle and equally probing questions from Jesus on the beach. When Jesus asked Peter in verse 15, Do you truly love me more than these? There's been a lot of debate about what the these is. Do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than fish fingers? I think what it means is Peter had boasted that even if the others ran away, I'm ready to die for you, Lord. He he was boasting that he loved Jesus more than them. And I think what Jesus is saying to me here is, Peter, do you really love me more than they do? Peter knew it. The other men knew it. Jesus knew it. He meant well. We might say he tried his best. It was good in one sense that he had the courage to be there, even in the high priest courtyard, warming his hands. But when it came to the crutch, he'd behave like a coward. Never heard of him. He thought he was invincible. But he wasn't. Neither are we. He hadn't even lived up to what he himself thought he was. And it was embarrassing for him. It was more than embarrassing. He wept. Tear, bitter tears. I love the way that Jesus does surgery on him here. 
in order to heal him. You know, sometimes people ask you a question once. They might say, how are you? And you go, I'm okay. And then they might just catch something go, really? Are you, how are you really? You, no, honestly, I'm okay. And then three times, me, come on now, really? Peter answers, Lord, you know that I love you. He's not quite so confident now, is he? But nonetheless, his love is real. But Jesus doesn't let him off with a glib response. He goes on to ask him again, and then a third time. And notice, by the end of the third time, in verse 17, John tells us that Peter was hurt. He was grieved that Jesus had asked him a third time. By another charcoal fire with three more probing questions Jesus gently confronts Peter with his own frailty and weakness not to crush him but to set him back on the right path <clears throat> what a master surgeon Jesus is Sometimes he cuts deeply in order to heal so wonderfully. So here's something else that the risen Jesus is always doing. Gently exposing our wounds of failure. Why? In order to heal them. Jesus brings the hope of forgiveness, new start. Even though Peter had failed so badly, Jesus had not given up on him. And he seeks him out to heal him and to recommission him. Jesus doesn't abandon us when we make mistakes. He goes after us to set us right again. Do you see how this chapter is building a picture of how the risen Jesus always goes about shaping and forming his church? He's with his people, giving his tender care, his awesome power, his nourishing presence. But his church is also a place where those who fail will find healing and restoration and be set free to serve him gladly again in the great tasks that he calls us to. One last thing to add, and then we're done. The risen Jesus here gives us and has always given us an invitation John makes clear the kind of invitation that the risen Jesus holds out to his friends. And the simple call is summed up at the end of verse 19 with two words. Follow me. That's an invitation, isn't it? Not coming off breakfast. Follow me. There are two striking things here with regard to this invitation. And the first is that Jesus strongly insists that if we're going to serve him at all, we have to love him. That's the great thrust of Jesus' surgical questions 
For Peter, look again at verse 15. Do you love me, Peter? Oh, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Gives them a job. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Oh, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you see what's happening there? Jesus is insisting that whatever he does, it has to come from a place of loving Jesus. I do love the fact that Jesus uses fishing and shepherding as the two great jobs that Christians are meant to do. Fishing is calling other people to Jesus. Shepherding is caring for them. It's not rocket science, that, is it? Fishing and shepherding. But Jesus makes clear that these tasks can only be built on loving Jesus. If you don't love him, you're serving something or someone else. Jesus calls you to follow him. And his first question is, do you love me? Do you love me? The second thing, though, is that Jesus makes it very clear that we mustn't care so much about what other people are doing. This is slightly weird. In verse 18, Jesus tells Peter that one day he would die for Jesus, which is remarkable after his claim. But Jesus says, yeah, well, John, John explains it with a comment, doesn't he? he? He meant by this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Peter's death isn't recorded in the Bible, but we understand that Peter was crucified too. Maybe 30 years or so after this. But at some point in this conversation, in verse 20, Peter realises that his friend, probably John, is following them. Maybe they're having a little walk down the beach after they've eaten their fish fingers. And John's following. And Peter turns around and he says to Jesus, what about him? What about him? And Jesus effectively says to Peter, if I want him to fly to the moon, what's it got to do with you? It's like, it, it actually starts a rumour. Je- Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I come, it's none of your business. And so people thought that John was going to live forever. And John has to explain in his own gospel, that's not what he meant. He didn't say that. If I want him to fly to the moon, what is that to you? Your job is simple, mate. Don't worry about what other people are doing. You, follow me. Doesn't Jesus cut to the chase? What about him? It's such a human question, isn't it? We love to compare ourselves with others. We're trying to work out who we are and what we're meant to be doing. Maybe it's even because Peter actually cared for John. He's not going to die as well, as he, Lord? But sometimes, you know, even our caring for other people can stand in the way of us following Jesus. Jesus says, forget about him. Concentrate on following me. This too sets a very important tone. We should say that the community of Jesus followers as a group is obviously very precious to Jesus. He loves his people. He loves his church. 
But this is an important truth here that every one of us has to personally hear this individually. We're not following Jesus by default because our parents do or because our spouse does or because our friends do. We're not necessarily following Jesus by being connected to a church full of other people who might be following Jesus. Jesus is saying, don't worry about other people. Do you love me? Follow me. Wherever I lead you, don't worry about them. Your job is to follow me. It's time to wrap up. In the first meal that we looked at, three meals with Jesus, first one, we saw something of the great honour due to Jesus in the deep devotion that Mary showed. In the second meal, we saw something of the humility of Jesus as he served his disciples washing their feet. I think what we see here in this third meal is the everlasting hope that is found in the risen Christ. These men would never forget this day when they saw Jesus here standing on the shore as the sun came up, knowing, caring, providing, directing, forgiving, and healing and realizing that this same risen Jesus would crown their feeble obedience with fruitfulness as they labor hard on the seas of life. What a picture this PS chapter is of the difference the resurrection of Jesus makes. May we too follow this risen, risen Jesus who gives us his care, his power, his presence, his forgiveness and his invitation. Follow me. A little earlier in John's gospel at the end of John chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, <laughs> he said to his disciples, in this world you'll have trouble. <laughs> what an understatement that is. In this world you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome this world. Take heart, I've overcome this world. Jesus says to you today, follow me. Let's uh, bow and pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word we thank you for this brilliant spectacular chapter we thank you for all that it warms our hearts with in relation to Jesus we thank you that what Jesus did here is what he's always doing we thank you that this is what he's like even now from his throne in heaven we pray that you would burn your word into every one of our hearts. Help us to respond to him with faith and love as we hear him call us, follow me. May it be so for his honour, for his glory and for our good, we pray in his name. Amen.